have dedicated an entire weekend to, to learning to understand the Bible better, and particularly the Gospels, which teach us about the life of our Savior. And I hope that uh, yesterday, by some of the things we talked about last night, you're able to get a, a little bit better picture of how the Gospels are put together and, and maybe a little bit uh, a deeper affection for the Savior. This morning I want to talk with you about uh, interpreting the parables of Jesus. And the great thing about the parables is you, you don't even have to be able to read to understand the parables if somebody reads them to you. For the most part, they're very simple stories with uh, illustrations that, at least in the first century, the people would have been very familiar with. But, but it's possible also to miss some of the finer nuances of the parables. To get the main point, I think, is easy enough. But sometimes the way that the, go- the gospel writers situate the parables in the course of the narrative are intended to bring out a little bit more meaning than we might get on the first reading. And so I want to share with you four or five principles, uh, questions to ask parables in interpreting parables, and then for us to look at several parables. So I want to, I want to lay the questions out kind of quickly, and then for us to illustrate it by looking at some parables, particularly from Luke's gospel. Parables have a major point and minor points, usually. If they're a very brief parable, uh, like the parable of the pearl of great price, and you'll remember the man that finds a, pair, a pearl in a field and he sells everything that he has in order to buy the field. It's just two verses long. It's just got one main point. But if a parable's a little bit longer, like the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son has one main point, and the main point is why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, because it brings joy to the heart of God. But there are minor points associated with each of the main characters, the father, the wayward son, and the, and the, um, and the pharisaical son. And we're going to look at that parable as well. So parables make minor, major, a major point, and then they have minor points. A second important aspect of interpreting parables is to look at how the parable concludes, what's called the law of the end. A parable is often like a good joke, and a joke usually has its punchline at the end. And the same is often true for a parable. It's everything building and culminating with a final important saying at the end of a parable. So it's called the law of the end. A third thing that you want to look for in parables is what precedes the parable and what follows the parable. A lot like we talked about last night. How does it fit into the narrative story? What comes before it and what comes after it? Because often the parable is intended to illustrate what comes before it and to introduce what comes after it. And we'll look, we'll look at an example of that as, as well. And then also, who gets the most space in a parable if there are characters? If there are characters in the parable... Who gets the most space? Who gets the most ink? And uh, we'll look at an example of that as well. So these are all general principles for interpreting parables and getting the most out of them. So let's look at some parables this morning and see what we can learn beyond just a cursory reading by answering some of these questions. Uh, Look with me, for instance, in Luke chapter 10. We'll spend most of our time in, in, uh, in Luke's gospel here in this first session. Because Luke has a number of 
parables that we're very familiar with. One parable that we're very familiar with in Luke chapter 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Interestingly enough, Luke is the only author that describes Jesus telling that parable. And the reason is Luke has an interest on outcast, people that were on the fringes of society because he was a Gentile, not a Jew, so he knew what it was like to be on the outside looking in. He knew what it was like to not be a member of the covenant of faith. And so he has a lot of stories and a lot of parables that are about outsiders. And one of those is the parable of of the Good Samaritan. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a parable that begins in chapter 10, verse 30, and it goes through chapter 10, verse 37. But notice what precedes the parable. Look with me in chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we've heard that question before, haven't we? Remember when we were studying the rich young ruler last night, the rich young ruler asked Jesus the very same question. In fact, scattered throughout Luke's gospel and the book of Acts that Luke also wrote is the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? This is something that you would pick up on if you read the gospel of Luke over and over and the book of Acts over and over. And if you were in the early church, that's probably the only gospel if you were in a particular area that you would have had. You wouldn't have had the the privilege of having Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You You would have had probably only one of those gospels. So you would have heard it read over and over and over and over again. Uh, keep your hand right there and, and go back with me, for instance, to, to Luke chapter 3. In the ministry of John the Baptist... John is preaching and uh, calling people to repentance. And look with me in verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, in light of John's preaching, then what shall we do? Go with me to verse 12. And tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And then look with me in verse 14. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And so when the Spirit of God begins to work in a person's life, they realize there needs to be some kind of response. Something needs to be done. I told you a little bit of my story last night, and I'll scatter a little bit of, more of it this morning. I was in Philadelphia. I was with, uh, with a guy. We were going up the East Coast. I was 18 years uh, of age. We were going to a guy's, uh, to a guy's trailer to, spend the, uh, uh, to sleep and to spend the night. We had been to see the Phillies play. I had this overwhelming sense inwardly. It was almost like an audible voice, but it wasn't, it wasn't audible that if I sought God, I could find life. And I didn't know Genesis from Revelation. I hadn't been raised in church. I was, I was biblically illiterate. Uh, you, could have, uh, you could have given me uh, a Bible and said, find the Gospel of John, and I might have been looking in Leviticus. I, I wouldn't have even known what the Gospel of John was. But I knew that I needed to do something. So I told those two guys I was going to go home and I was going to try and find God. And I did know enough that I knew that the Bible was called the Word of God and so that I ought to start reading the Bible. Maybe that's what a Christian person was. Christian people read the Bible. 
And so I left Philadelphia. I went back to Cape uh, Kennedy where I was raised and went to uh, live with my mother and my fourth stepfather who was an atheist. And uh, they had one Bible in their home, a Bible that my brother had gotten when he went to a, Roman, went to a Catholic school. And I began reading that Bible because I knew that I needed to do something to this overwhelming sense. And that's, what, that's what's happening here with, with uh, the people that are questioning John. Well, we go to chapter 10, and, and uh, the question again is asked, a lawyer stood and put him to the test, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, turn with me to chapter 18. Turn with me to chapter 18 that we looked at last night. In chapter 18, Luke has the question coming from the rich young ruler. Chapter 18, verse 18. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Uh, Go with me now to the book of Acts. Again, these two books would have been like volume one and volume two in the ancient Barnes and Nobles. They would have been side by side. The only reason that they're in separate books is because the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are so long they would have taken up an entire scroll. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Acts is the second or third longest book in the New Testament. So look with me in chapter 2. Peter has just preached a sermon. And look in... um, Let me find uh, the reference because I'm having to do it uh, from memory. I think it's in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized. Now let me show you one more reference. It's in Acts chapter 16. It's in a jailhouse in Philippi. There's been an earthquake. The jailer thinks that everyone has escaped, which means he would be executed. And so he's going to commit suicide. Paul stops him from committing suicide. And... uh, Look in verse 30. Well, let's start in verse 29, give the entire sentence. And he called for lights, and he rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So as you read through the Gospels, particularly an individual writer like Luke, you look for reoccurring ideas and themes. Because that's the way in the ancient world that a writer would communicate that something was important. They didn't have italics or bold. Everything was written by hand. Uh, Everything was written in the same script. There was no punctuation marks. There was no separation between words. There was no versification. There was no chapter division. So the way that they would communicate something was important was either by repeating it or by giving a lot of detail, a lot of space to a particular story. So we see Jesus has asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus turns the question around and he says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he brings together a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. And Jesus says to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. 
But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So then Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is intended to illustrate who our neighbor is. And to answer the question what it means to love our neighbor, there's two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the parable of the Good Samaritan answers the question, how do I love my neighbor as myself? By being willing to sacrifice time and energy and money for the well-being of another person is the way that we love our neighbor as ourself. And you're familiar with the parable. But notice the very next story. The next story is a story about Martha and Mary. And you're probably familiar with this, with this story as well. It's not a parable. It was a real event. But you remember the Gospels aren't necessarily put together with a precise chronology. Sometimes the stories are told in a particular order to make a specific point. So look with me in verses 38 through 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, that sounds a little bit like the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is, if you want to be saved, you need to help people out. And Mary isn't helping me. I'm doing all of the work. Verse 41, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You know, whenever Curtis calls you by your name twice, Joe, Joe, you you know you're in trouble. And And he says, Martha, Martha. You're... Worried about so many things. But really only one thing matters. Only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall be taken away from her. Now you see a lot of times we read this story and we we miss the real import of it. We think it's a story about it's it's better to study than it is to serve. Well, that's not what it's about at all. It's a story that's intended to teach us what it means to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think of the way it's constructed in just a moment. Go back to the question that was asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. B, love your neighbor as yourself. Then we have the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan illustrates what? The B part of the answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what about the A part of the answer? What does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, that's what the story of Mary and Martha is all about. It's a story that teaches us that one way that we love Jesus is by sitting at his feet and listening to his word. And so it's easy if you don't read through the Gospels thinking, does this story relate to to what precedes in some way, to miss entirely the, the importance of that story. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is a parable that's intended to teach us how to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, what you don't want to do is you don't want to allegorize it. You don't want to try and find a meaning for every little part of the story. And you're familiar with allegories like Pilgrim's Progress. 
That is, the, the, the donkey doesn't mean anything in the story. The oil doesn't mean anything in the story. The most important part of the story is how the good Samaritan is willing to serve the man that has been beaten, and how the religious people are willing to bypass the man that has been beaten. And so there is, there's a reversal in our thinking. The hero is the bad guy. That is, in Jewish culture, the Samaritan would have been, would have been the bad guy. It's, it's like in, in, the, in the Old South. If you were to go into a racist community, and you were to preach a sermon... And an African-American person became the hero of that sermon. Those non-religious, those non-Christian racist people would have been infuriated. They wouldn't have been upset if the preacher had been made the bad guy, that is the Levite. They wouldn't have been upset if the deacons were made the bad guy, that is the priest. But to have somebody that they hated, had disdain for, that would have infuriated them. Uh, not even so much like the Old South. I, I, I ministered in, in southern Louisiana. Curtis and I were talking about this on the way, on the way in. And, and uh, we began in this little church that I pastored, the first church I ever pastored, to, to reach out to non-Caucasian people that were in the area, African-American people and, and, uh, and people like Homa Indians that had, had lived in this r- very rural uh, area. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan coming one night and confronting me as I was leaving a, a funeral home and just vehemently upset that, that, uh, that I would minister to non-white people and invite them into our church. Well, the man that was the leader of the group, my wife and I had led his uh, 30-year-old daughter to Christ. And I can remember him saying to me, saying, Preacher, we don't like you bringing non-white people into our church. And uh, he wasn't a very big guy, but the guys with him were kind, of, were kind of big. I don't know if he didn't think I could recognize his voice or not since I'd known him for almost three years. So I, I said, Bobby, you go to the Methodist church. You don't even go to the Baptist church. And uh, he said, Preacher, it doesn't matter. My daughter goes to that church. Well, that's the kind of mentality that Jesus was getting at when he made the Samaritan the hero of this, of this story. But it answers the question, how do I love my neighbor as myself? You've got to be willing to give up time like the Good Samaritan. You've got to be willing to give up money like the Good Samaritan. You've got to be willing to give up energy uh, like the Good Samaritan. And so the Good Samaritan and the story of Mary and Martha are interrelated. It's not enough just to do good to people, and it's not enough just to become a Bible student. It's not enough just to read your Bible every day and go to church and read books on theology. And it's not enough just to go on mission trips and to help the impoverished. The two go together if you want to have a whole Christian life. It's serving people and it's loving Jesus by sitting at his feet. Uh, Turn with me over to chapter 13 in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 13. I'm sorry, go with me to chapter 12, in verse 13. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Now, sometimes when you're reading a parable, Luke, before he recounts Jesus telling the parable, will actually tell us what the parable's all about. He'll introduce the story in a way that, that highlights for us what the parable means. So look with me, for instance, beginning in verse 13, and we'll look at a parable called the parable of the rich 
fool. And so verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So that's what the parable is going to be about. The parable is going to be about greed. Because greed leads us to believe that the more we have, the better off we are, or the more respectable of a person that we are. That our address, the car we drive, the clothes we wear determine the level of our prestige. And and that emanates from a heart of greed. So he's going to tell a parable about greed. Parable of the rich fool. So he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. Now, there's not going to be anything wrong with being rich, and there's not going to be anything wrong with having a farm that's productive. Then he said, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 17. And he began reasoning in himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He has an abundance of crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Then I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, go back there and underline or circle every pronoun, I or my. And you'll notice how just consumed he is with himself. He doesn't consult God, and he doesn't think about other people. All he's thinking about is himself. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain, my goods, my soul. And I will say to my soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So that's what he's saying to himself. He's talking to himself, but now God begins to talk to him. And rather than addressing him as rich, God addresses him as a fool. That's why we call it the parable of the rich fool. He says, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Now here's the law of the end. So is the man. So we leave the parable world and Jesus begins to interpret the parable. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We'll go back to the introduction there in verse 15. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, many people, when they finish the parable and they begin reading the next story... They don't think the next story has a lot to do with the parable, and, there's a, and they make a disconnect. But go with me to verse 34, the very end of the chapter. It says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, go back with me to the end of the parable again in verse 31. I'm sorry, not verse 31, but um, verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward 
God. Notice the word treasure in verse 21 and the word treasure in verse 34. Circle the word treasure in 34 and circle the word treasure in 21. It's called an inclusio. It's like a bracket or a parenthesis. And what it's intended to say is everything in between those two sections is intended to teach us about having the right attitude toward our treasure, which is exactly the problem that the rich man had. The rich man had the wrong attitude toward his treasure. And so what Jesus does, beginning in verse 22 and going through verse 33, is to tell us how we can know if we're becoming like the rich man. Now, you remember the rich man was very anxious. He was worried. He was troubled. He was greatly concerned. He had all of these goods and all of this wealth. And what was he going to do with it? He didn't pray about it. He didn't think about using it for others. He was only concerned about using it for himself. So there was a great deal of anxiety. Now, notice in verse 22, And Jesus said to the disciples, Go back to verse 13. Someone in the crowd. So from 13 through 21, Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to the masses. But beginning in verse 22, he turns and he begins to speak to the disciples. And he wants them to know that the way you can tell that you're becoming like the rich fool is if you become very anxious about the accumulation of things. Because notice beginning in verse 22, how many times he tells them, don't be anxious or do not worry. He says in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, now put brackets around this phrase, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat nor your body for what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. That's the very opposite of the attitude that the the rich fool had. He thought everything in life had to do with possessions. And Jesus said, your life is more than your possessions. He says, consider the the ravens. And then he says, consider, uh, then go to verse uh, 25, put brackets around this. Which of you by worrying? And then he says, think about the flowers. Go to verse 29, put brackets around this. Do not keep worrying. And then in verse 32, he says, do not be afraid. And so he teaches them anxiety, an unnatural anxiety over clothing or possessions or income is a sign that your heart is in the wrong place. Now, how do you counteract that? How do you overcome that? Look back in verse 31 with me. He says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is a, is a counteraction to an insatiable hunger for more. But if you were to read the parable of the rich fool by itself, you could get a lot out of it, but you would miss how the continuation of the story is intended to elaborate and to teach how you don't become like the rich fool. Well, turn with me over to chapter, chapter um, 16. 
Turn with me over to chapter 16 for just a moment. Chapter 16 in the, in the parable of the, of the unrighteous steward is one of the most difficult parables that Jesus ever told. And the reason that it's so difficult is because Jesus seems to be praising a lying, scheming, conniving thief. So look with me and let's, let's read the parable and, and, and let's see if we can't learn how to, how to get the main idea from the parable by, by looking at the context. So in chapter 16, verse 1, now he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, that is, he's lazy. I'm ashamed to beg, that is, he's proud. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill... Sit down quickly and write 50. Now, he's still in control of his manager's affairs. He's supposed to be bringing the books to to a final reckoning. But before he does it, he is going to ingratiate himself to these people that are in debt to his manager, to his owner, to his his, um, employer. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. Now that's what makes this so difficult. Why is Jesus telling a parable about a thief and then commending the thief for what the thief did when he went on and he stole more from the master? Now, again, in the ancient world, uh, what makes this parable a little bit difficult is we don't know where the parable ends exactly and where Jesus' teaching on the parable begins because there's no punctuation, there's no red letters, there's, uh, there, there, there's no separation of words, no versification, no chapter divisions. But most scholars believe that's where the parable ends, at verse 8a. And you could put a period there. And then in 8b... Jesus tells us what the parable's about. For the the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? What he means by it, and what we'll see in verses 9 through 13, is that 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 low-down, lying, stealing thief was making plans for the future. He's going to be kicked out. He's not going to have anywhere to go, but there are going to be these people that were in debt to his master. And I remember what you did for me. You cut my debt in half by 50%. You can come live with me. You can work for me. You can, I, I will take care of you. And Jesus is saying that people in the world are smarter about getting ready for the future planning for retirement, buying insurance, all of the things may be necessary, 
than the children of God, than the children of light are preparing for eternity. They're smarter about getting ready for their temporal future than we are in getting ready for our eternal future. And the way that he says that we are to get ready for a better eternity, the way that we can store up treasure in heaven is by using our money now for God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom. So look with me as as it, as it begins to unfold. Now we're out of the story world. And remember, Jesus is teaching the disciples. And so he goes on to say, uh, let me go back to just, yeah, let me begin in verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now that tells us he's, tells us he's teaching about eternity, he's teaching about heaven about when the Christian dies and goes to heaven. There are some things we can do on earth that if you you could understand in the right way that will quote-unquote make heaven even more enjoyable and even more glorious for us. One way is by using our wealth to make friends on earth so that when we die, if they have preceded us in death, they will be in heaven and receive us. An example of this might be for years we had a, a World Vision child. We were at, uh, at a, uh, I think, a Point of Grace concert in Birmingham, Alabama. And Heather Payne of Point of Grace sings in our praise team at our church. And uh, during the intermission, you could go out and, and you, could, uh, you, could, you could adopt a World Vision child. So we adopted a little girl from South America. From the time she was about five until she was 18, every month we sent money. And on regular occasions, we would send extra money so that she could go to camps or uh, get extra school supplies or or, uh, get extra things for her her family. Now, we never met her. Occasionally, we would get get cards from her. And occasionally, we would be able to send, send, uh, send extra things to her, like little story books about the Bible. And living in a, in a third world impoverished country, it would not be unheard of, though it would be horrible to think that maybe she would have died before us, even though she's much younger than my wife and I. But let's say that she did. And let's say that through that financial commitment that we made to her, she came to faith in Jesus Christ. What he is saying here is, it's possible that when we die, my wife and I die and go to heaven, there will be that... She won't be a little girl. She'll be a a glorified young lady. And she will welcome us into eternity. And she might say to us, you know, it was because I went to a Bible camp that you paid for that that I met Jesus. Or because of the Christian books you sent to my family, our family was one to Christ. So he's saying here, the way we use our money will affect eternity. But he goes on even further. Look in verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? See, when we think of money, because we live on the, you're college students, you're living on the edge, you're maybe working uh, two jobs trying to, trying to stay in school. Maybe your parents are sacrificing to, uh, to, 
to put you through school. For us, money is a big thing, but for God, it's a little test. And if we're not faithful with money, God will not entrust us with true spiritual riches. He won't give us the things that really matter most. When I got saved, I, I told you a little bit of, of, my, of, of my story. When I got saved, I didn't know, because I wasn't raised in church, that most Christian people don't give 10% of their income to, to, the, kingdom of, to the kingdom of God. I didn't know that most Christians didn't witness I didn't know that, that most Christians uh, uh, didn't do a lot of the things that I just thought when you became a Christian that you naturally did, like give to the church sacrificially, witness to friends, uh, do your schoolwork for, uh, for the... I didn't realize until, actually, until I went to Southwestern Seminary. That's when I discovered, in seminary, my first rude awakening was most Christian people, even most ministerial people, they don't tithe. They don't give sacrificially to missions. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, uh, they don't witness on a regular basis. And Jesus says, if you won't even handle your money, which is so trivial, so minute, so insignificant in a way that glorify God, why should I bless your relationship with your spouse? Why should I bring into your life the kind of person that you're going to spend your entire life with, a maid? Why should I fill your life with a kind of joy that comes from knowing and loving and serving Jesus if you won't even take a tiny little thing like money and and give generously to the advancement of of God's kingdom? And so he goes on to say, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, uh, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, because we say it's God's money, but actually we, we use it as if it's our money. We seldom inquire of God about the making of significant purchases. Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So notice how definitive that is. There's no equivocation. Now, the question might be, particularly if you're a person that is, that is prone to being stingy, tight-fisted, penny-pinching, you're very enamored with uh, possessions and things, and you don't give regularly to the kingdom, you might think, well, how in the world do I know that all of this is about money? Well, look in verse 14. Verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money... We're listening to all this. Now, he's talking to the disciples, but they're listening in. They're eavesdropping. And they were scoffing at him. Why? Because they were lovers of money, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. Uh, Let me give you just another, another illustration about the importance of looking at the context, the beginning of a parable, and the conclusion of a parable. Then we'll have prayer and, uh, and take a break. Look with me in chapter 18. In chapter 18. In chapter 18, Luke is telling a parable about prayer. In fact, he tells two parables. The first one is in verses 1 through 8, and it's the parable of the, of the unjust judge, of the persistent widow. And then he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Both of them are about prayer. You remember in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican, a tax collector. Why only two? Because there's only two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people that pray. There are self-righteous people 
and then there are very humble people. So he says there's, there's, there's two kinds, the Pharisee and the tax collector. But I want us to look at the first parable. Look in chapter 18, verse 1. Now, he was telling them a parable to, to, to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Now, that's Luke, not Jesus. But it doesn't matter if Luke says it or if Jesus, or if Luke wrote it or Jesus said it because it's all inspired by God. What Luke wrote is as equal in authority to what Jesus said because they're both inspired by God. So Luke is telling us before we read the parable that it's about not giving up. It's about persistence. It's about not, it's about not quitting. It's about not, it's about not losing heart. Our family's praying for a particular person that's not walking with God. And, and sometimes my wife and I would just become overwhelmed and discouraged as we, as we pray for this person. And, and uh, we cry at night as we pray for them. And sometimes we wonder if God's hearing our prayers. And, and then I'm reminded uh, in, my, in my dark moments that, that we ought to pray and not lose heart. Now let's see why. Why should we pray and not lose heart? In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponents. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. If, if you have a Bible with, with cross-references or, or marks and notations, most references, most notations will have something besides that translation, wear me out. What's your center column say, if you have one? Beat me up. Give me a black eye. That is, she's pestering him to death. Every time he leaves his house and he heads to the courtroom, there she is begging him for legal protection. When he leaves the courtroom and goes home, there she is. She's beating me to death, uh, metaphorically, he's saying. I just can't put up with her anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to answer her petition. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now we'll, well, the unrighteous judge said, uh, I'm going to give her legal protection before she wears me out. Now, God isn't like the judge. The judge didn't fear God and the judge didn't care about people, but God loves his people. God loves us. He's not like the judge. He's not like the judge that you've got to you've got to pester. He's not like the judge that you've got to manipulate. He's not like the judge that you've got to wear down. He says, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cried to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Now, you might wonder, then why doesn't God answer all of our prayers immediately? Why doesn't God answer this prayer for my wife and I are praying for a particular person right now if he's not like the unjust judge? Why do we sometimes have to pray for years? You know, we think sometimes that, that we think of prayer in the wrong way. Prayer is about relationship. And have you ever noticed the more quickly God answers our prayer, the less time we spend in prayer? If God were to answer our prayers like this, and sometimes he does, 
Often he doesn't. It would be like a Coke machine. You drop in the quarters, you get the drink, and, and you begin to take advantage of God. Or if God would let us take advantage of him, he doesn't. But prayer is about relationship. And the longer I pray about a matter, the more time I'm in his presence, and the more I begin to see the situation from his perspective, the more clear it, 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 it becomes. If you were to know me very well, and if you were, if you were to know my wife, you would see that I, I married the most wonderful woman in the entire world. I, I fell in love with her. They say there's no, no uh, love at first sight. Well, it might not have been first sight, but it was first date. I took her out on our very first date. She was a senior in high school. I had been saved about eight or nine months. She was saved at six. I was saved as a reprobate. So here I was. I take her on this date. I had never met anybody like her before. She was, she had, she was godly and, uh, and be- just everything about her was just unbelievable. So I fell in love with her immediately. It, it took me years of pestering her and wearing her down, about four and a half years, till finally she just was like the judge. And she just said, if I don't marry him, he's not going to leave me alone. Well, why didn't God just answer my prayer? Because I went home that night, I got beside my bed and I said, Lord, I want to marry that girl. Well, she, more than one time, she said to me, you know, don't call me anymore, Bill. I, li- I like you. We're not going to go out anymore. We just need to be friends. Well, persistence pays off over time. Why didn't God just answer my prayer like that? Why did he make me wait almost four years until finally something, some little spark uh, came to life in her and she began to feel toward me like I felt toward her? Uh, because there was a lot of work that had to be done in me. She was a pure precious lady that was converted at six. I teased that my wife was saved before she had ever sinned. It wasn't like that, but she's such a wonderful person. And, and here I was saved out of darkness. I had a lot of things that I needed to work through. I needed to become a man of God. I needed to be kind of, kind of person that could actually lead her. So by the time we married, I was memorizing chapters of the Bible. I was, I, was, uh, leading, uh, I was leading evangelistic Bible studies on high school campuses. I was at a point in my life that I could actually lead her. But if God had answered that prayer for me, the moment I began to pray it, it would have been catastrophe for her. It would have been catastrophe for me because I wasn't prepared to be the kind of spiritual leader that she was going to eventually uh, eventually need. But there's more to the story than just God drawing it out so that we'll spend time with him and then we can begin to see his perspective and he, became, he can do a work in us. Notice with me again in verse 7. Now, will not God bring about justice for the elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, the question is, what in the world does that latter part of verse 8 have to do with the parable? The parable is not talking about the second coming of Jesus. Now, circle the word faith, and you'll know the next story is about salvation, isn't it? That's, that's what we looked at last night with the Pharisee and the publican, and then the children, and then the rich young ruler, then blind Bartimaeus, and then uh, Zacchaeus. So in one sense, this idea is pointing us forward. He's going to talk about faith on the earth. A tax collector finding faith, children finding faith, uh, Bartimaeus finding faith, Zacchaeus finding faith. 
But go back with me to chapter 17, verse 22. If your Bible has little headings in it, what does chapter 17, verse 22 have over top of it? Second timing foretold, many Bibles have. That's what mine has. So from 17.22 through verse 37, he's talking about how to get ready for the second coming. How can you be ready when Jesus comes? He's going to come unexpectedly. How do we know that we're going to be ready? He tells a parable on prayer. The way that you get ready for the second coming of Jesus, one way that you get ready for the second coming of Jesus is to be faithful in what? In prayer. And that's what verse 8 is all about, 8b. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How will he find faith? He'll find faith in people who are praying. How do you get ready for the second coming? You be a person of persistent prayer. So the parable in one sense is about not giving up, about not quitting. And while we wait on Jesus to come, there's a lot of turmoil and heartache and disappointment and trials and and letdowns, and it would be easy to give up. So the way that we don't give up is by being a person of prayer. Let me ask you before we have a, a moment of prayer, how's your prayer life doing? In the midst of a busy academic schedule, in the midst of all of the exams and papers and, uh, and things that you, that you are doing, how is your prayer life? Is there, is there something in your life that you've, been, that you've been thinking about giving up on? Maybe a person or a circumstance or a situation. Maybe it's raising money for a mission, to go on a mission trip with the church. Uh, any, any number of things. Maybe what the Lord may be saying to you through the parable of the unjust judge is don't give up. Don't quit quite yet. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the parables. In one sense... They are so easy to understand that virtually anyone can read them. An illiterate person could have them read to them, like the illiterate people that Jesus preached them to. And they could almost immediately understand them. And yet beyond that, Father, there's so much more that that we can learn when we look at the circumstances, when we look at the surrounding passages, when we, when we think closely about the way that it's structured. And Father, particularly about prayer. Father, if there's something in our lives that we are not being faithful to pray for because we've lost heart or we have had the time of prayer squeezed out. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us right now and that we could make a fresh commitment to pray for that person or that circumstance or that situation or just to be more diligent to find a little bit of time each day to come into your presence and pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Pastor.
Thank you, Dr. Cook. We have one more session. I'm going to be in a little bit. It's uh, by my watch, 10.48 in the a.m. And and we're going to meet back in here at 11.20, okay? Now, for the break time, um, they're getting everything ready in the fellowship hall, so let's just congregate out here instead or outside um, because they're trying to get a lot of things prepared right now for the lunch, which will come about 12.30. Now, I need to see... Michael Watford, James Gillespie, Scott Johnson, Matt McMitchin, Andrew Slade, Tim Butler, Tuberville, Jeffrey Robertson, Trey Gallant. When we break for just a minute. All right, y'all, y'all take a break. You're in trouble. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs>